This evening I'd like to speak about the Sure Heart's Release. It's a long-range view and an overview of our practice, so uh, it it, um, covers a lot of ground. So I hope you can bear with it. Through our practice here together and, and through our practice in our lives, we begin to understand more and more profoundly the impersonal nature of this mind and body process, the impersonal, impermanent nature, unsatisfactory nature of this mind-body process. We learn how to bring a balanced attention to it, a caring awareness to our experience as we know the, the bounds with which we're operating in. We know this so that the heart and mind cannot unfold where it's closed in upon itself. So what can be revealed can be revealed that has long been unrealized. We begin to experience very directly the true nature of this unfolding life. And we, un- we learn to understand what it takes the gentle, persevering effort that it takes, the courage and compassion it takes to bring a sobering honesty to our experience, to open to what's underneath the stories of our lives, what's underneath the projections we've put on top of our experiences. We learn to open to what's hard to bear. When this happens, the path to liberation can be easily more recognized, can be seen. We learn to understand what is unwholesome, what leads to suffering, what leads to pain for ourselves and others. And we begin to just let go of that, to relinquish it, to weaken it through our practice. We know what is wholesome more and more, what leads to harmony in our own hearts, what leads to harmony among others, what leads to the end of suffering for all. And we begin to nourish that, to develop that. We have the courage more and more to do all of that. With these two as a basis, there is a beginning for the development of wisdom. And for most of us, this happens gradually in ever-deepening ways. And we learn through that gradual opening, that gradual awakening, that gradual development of more and more wisdom, that we can rely on that. We can really depend on that to uh, come forth when it is needed. We have faith in that. So no matter what stones are thrown, into the field, into the uh, pond of our awareness, of our moment-to-moment experience, what uh, stones are thrown into it that causes ripples or waves or tsunamis, there is a deep sense that it will settle down eventually. It will pass. And once again, there will be the ability to see clearly what is the right way What is the right direction? So tonight I'd like to talk about how our practice produces refinements 
refinements of happiness and peace as we go along. Not from acquiring anything, not even spiritual attainments. This isn't a path, really, of attaining anything, but it's a path of purification. It's a path of letting go, purifying the mind and heart of clinging, of ill will in all the various ways that it manifests, purifying the mind and heart of ignorance and delusion. It's a path with immediate and far-reaching benefits as we see in our own experience. It's a path that can also um, contain something beyond our wildest imaginations, something beyond all of this conditioned experience. So I wanted to lay out that long-range view for you. Through time, we experience the harmful tendencies weakening and even dying out in the long range. We experience goodwill and the natural tendency towards harmony that comes out of that when there's a weakening, a dying out, an uprooting of the tendencies of ill will, uh, clinging, delusion, What naturally comes out of our hearts and minds, our mouths, in words, our actions, is goodwill, is benevolence, is a great deal of integrity. And this has a great effect on our own ability to rely on ourselves. It has a great effect, of course, on people all around us. So we come to see the great benefit in a very uh, short-term way. I love this quote by Sogyal Rinpoche of the Tibetan tradition. He says, the practice of mindfulness unveils and reveals your essential good heart because it dissolves and removes the unkindness or the harm in you. Only when you have removed the harm in yourself do you become useful, really useful to others. So when I first started practicing, like all of you, it was because of pain and suffering. I was searching for something that could be um, reliable, easily accessible to me on a day-to-day basis, some kind of even momentary peace, some calm, some way to understand life more deeply and not be confused by what was going on in my life. I mean, I'm the one talking here, so I can tell you my experiences, but you yourselves probably have your own uh, experiences that can serve even more deeply than mine to, to understand your story of finding deeper meaning in life. So actually, I got to my first retreat in my life when I was in my 20s, in my mid-20s. And um, as I have mentioned before, it was a difficult period in my life. I had just um, come over the, the ocean, the Pacific Ocean, with three children and being single. 
and I had to raise them on my own. Previously, I had um, one helper for every child, a cook, a driver, and a gardener. I had six people to help me. But now I was alone, and it was really suffering. (laughs) Um, So one day, I was coming home from some errand, and I passed by the university that was nearby our house, and it had this big sign that was having a spiritual fair. So even though the children were clamoring for um, some food, and they didn't want to go with me on my little jaunts to see these things that I wanted to see, I drove in anyway, and I entered this huge uh, gymnasium. And uh, when I walked in, it, it was just humongous. And there were booths all along the way, and they each were advertising what they wanted us to come and see. And there was incense, and there was drumming, and, you know, bells, and, and all the things that I love to be distracted by <laughs> during that time. Anything to um, forget the suffering for a while. But the children kept pulling on me and saying, I want to go home. I don't want to go to this hippie event. Let's, you know, let's go home. But way in the corner, in the back corner, I saw a sign that said, Silent Retreat. I didn't look at anything else. I made a beeline for that sign. And uh, there... And under that sign were some great Dharma friends that have continued to be my friends. And um, they were advertising a a weekend retreat, and eventually a month-long retreat, which I signed up for, and I went to that retreat. So soon after, in that month-long retreat, I met my first teacher, Manindraji, when he first came to America. And it was the beginning of my practice. So I I let him know what my aspirations were. You know, I I just wanted some time of calm, of peace in my life. And he made clear to me that those aspirations I had were clearly valuable. They were something to really pay attention to, to and not discount. But he was very clear that the ultimate aim of the Buddha was not that, that there was a a very far-reaching aim Uh, aspiration that the Buddha presented to all of us that I could maybe open my heart to. That there was this possibility to realize unconditional peace. It didn't have to be conditioned upon the children being quiet or even finding some temporary peace uh, or calm in my life. But that there was this possibility of unshakable deliverance of mind and heart. And in the words of the Buddha, it was in this, um, this passage that I call the sure heart's release, the very reasons for the teachings that is offered, teachings that are offered by the Buddha. So I'd like to read this. It, it has always had great meaning for me and continues to from the Majjhima Nikaya, the simile of the heartwood. So this holy life, he was speaking to the Brahmins, so this holy life does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, 
or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of the holy life, its hardwood and its end. And further, it says in another passage, the purpose of my teaching, this is the Buddha's words, the purpose of my teaching of the holy life of the Dhamma is not for gaining merit, nor good deeds, nor rapture, nor concentration, but for the sure heart's release. This and this alone is the reason for the teachings of the Buddha. So the release the Buddha is talking about is the complete relinquishing, the total uprooting purification of greed, hatred, and delusion from the mind stream. And the Buddha made clear that cultivating generosity, virtuous conduct, concentration or calm is not the only thing that can be realized and taken benefit from, but it has a further aim than that. Manindraji, that first teacher of mine, uh, and continued to be my teacher during the rest of his lifetime after I met him. He passed away already. He used to say that there are three areas of life we can bring our mindful attention to. He always tried to make things simple and easy. As uh, I think Joseph mentioned the other night, he says, I'm not a simpleton, (laughs) but I try to make things simple and easy. He said, this, these three areas will support the long-range goal of complete liberation. And he put it in the framework of the three pillars of the Dhamma. It's very easy. The first pillar is the pillar of dana, or the mindful practice of actually giving, the action of giving. The inner attitude is generosity, but the action is giving. Not just thinking about it, but actually practicing it. The second pillar is sila, the mindful practice of living in harmony, of living in a way that causes um, happiness and peace to others and to ourselves, refraining from doing harm through our speech and behavior. And the third pillar is called bhavana, the development of two things, the development of concentration, calm, tranquility. This is the first thing. And the second is the development of wisdom through vipassana. So it's this very simple way of giving attention to establishing strength to all those three pillars of our lives and really checking on those three areas. Are we practicing this generosity, which I'll lay out in, in more completeness? Are we practicing in the area of harmonious living, of virtuous conduct? Are we really doing our practice day to day in the area of developing calm concentration and wisdom? 
So these can prove to us to be a reliable foundation and a true refuge in our lives. It's easy to see with the trainings of giving and not harming how it promotes connection, of course, with both of them. It promotes that open-hearted connection. And when we have that connection with ourselves, uh, our own hearts, and with others, that's a real refuge. That's a place where we feel that we can really rely, when we keep practicing that, when we can rely on ourselves to see what is the way that connects with others through harmony. We're not plagued by disconnection and unworthiness, which doesn't uh, give rise to calm. But when we do our practices of connecting through giving, through that kind of letting go, when we do our practices of living in harmony through practicing the precepts, of course, of non-harming, we lay the foundation for bhavana to, uh, to arise, to be strong, to be a great foundation. So these are practices worthy of our energy that we put forth here and during our practice at home. Many times when the Buddha offered the teachings, even to those who were highly developed in their practice, he began with the practice of dana, and then sila, and then offering the practice of developing the mind and the heart. And even when many of us go to our practices with our, with our seyadaos, with our beloved seyadaos, uh, always it's the dana uh, understanding is always presented first. It, it doesn't matter where you are in your practice doesn't matter how many times you've heard that talk. There's always something more that you can be, we can be inspired by. <clears throat> From a general perspective, I want to talk about dana now. It has two aims. The first aim, of course, is to help others. When we give of ourselves, when we give of our time, our energy our kindness, our material resources, it relieves others of their suffering. It, it just helps them in the present moment. Or maybe it's not, we're not giving for their present moment, but so their future will be also a time of uh, feeling somehow taken care of, feeling loved. It inspires in them a sense of worthiness, which is really wonderful. We don't often think about that. But when we give to others, it makes them feel like, I'm worthy as a human being of being offered this gift. Um, When we connect with them, we're saying, you are a worthy person. And this in itself is is a great gift to give. I know when I receive gifts, I feel that. I feel the connection, and I feel strengthened by the connection with another being, and uh, feel strengthened by their strength, and their, um, their kind of belief in and, and seeing that worthiness in my own heart, in my own life. 
It makes others feel a sense of their inner richness. It not only um, gives us a chance to see our own richness inside of our hearts, our ability to give from that richness. It doesn't have to be material wealth. It can be just a sense of connecting in some small way. It makes people feel loved and just not to kind of figure it out psychologically in their heads or theoretically, but it really makes people feel loved. It could be so simple. I I once heard a story of someone who um, came home and found on her answering machine just someone playing something very soothing on the piano. And she had been going through some hard times. So she she heard this message, which was just soothing piano playing. And she could probably figure out who it was, but she, it, it was a gift to her. And it really made her feel like she was loved going through that hard time. <clears throat> it reminds me of um, not too long ago, it was not even a month ago, I think, that someone who um, uh, who has a great big heart wanted to give me a gift. And it was more than a gift of material resource. So he wrote me an email and he said, click on this YouTube and there is a surprise for you. So I clicked on the YouTube and somebody videotaped this person and um, I, it, it was really was one of the greatest gifts I've ever received. And he just said, hello, Kamala. It was him, <laughs> the person. And he said, I'm giving you the gift of playing this sonata for you. And it, it was just so beautiful. It, it, you know, I just had so much tears of joy and, and gratitude. I couldn't thank him enough. We know who it is, right? So it's just, um, it was just so simple, the simplest gift possible. And so he, you know, he played and then somebody was taking the camera and then then he got up and he put his hands together and it's so much gratitude, you know. It was so inspiring that we could give something so simple and... um, It inspires so much gratitude in one's heart. And when you feel that gratitude, that gratitude alone is such a gift. It's not just what was given, but to feel that moment of kind of release. You know, you let go of your troubles for a while or let go of your to-do list and all you must take care of during the day. It nourishes a great nourishment. Just to even think about it was great nourishment. It's very healing. So the result is to help others. The first result. But the second aim is to help oneself. When I first, um, I actually got this teaching directly from Manindraji. And he says, do you want to understand dana more deeply? more completely. It can bring others happiness, but it can bring you happiness as well. 
and ultimately liberation. And I said, of course, I want to know. So he said, the second aim is really supporting our own well-being when we give. Because when we give, we have in our hearts loving kindness. And so that supports our well-being. It's more than just the gift. We have in our hearts some compassion for, for another. Um, we have in our hearts some joy. You know, we, we have joy for that person's uh, being in our lives. And by giving, we, of course, we bring them joy and we have even more joy because of that. And also to be able to let go of what, you know, we think is ours. Uh, this is what Seda Upandita told me is, we must have equanimity to be able to, to let go of our possessions, whatever they are, energetic or material. It brings an immediate happiness to us that no one can take away when we give something. Beforehand, with the intention, there's happiness. At the time of giving, if we really pay attention, there's happiness. Even afterwards, just in reviewing, you know, the times that little things that I've given, there's, there's happiness. And so it's completely surrounded by happiness. So often I reflect on the act of giving done in the past um, and just certain people I've given to, umbrellas to, or I remember when I gave um, one of my dear friends in, in Burma, her name is Kamala, Kamala Nyani, and she's a nun, and she's also a doctor, a medical doctor, who became a nun. And so I usually save all my medicines and, and the things that maybe I could give her at the end of retreat when I've been there. And so they're very little, but when I went to give her something, uh, this, these gifts at the end of my retreat, I was giving to her and I said to her, um, Makamala, this, these are gifts are very small, but they're, they're really from my heart, completely from my heart. And she said, oh, she said, Kamala, um, do not say that. Do not say that it's small. She said, Chaitana, or intention, is not small. What's behind that intention is very, very great. She said, this, these gifts are material, but your Chaitana your intention is not small. So even just thinking about that, you know, the wisdom that comes from her words, um, very powerful for me. The Buddha said, if beings knew as I know the results of sharing gifts, they would not enjoy their use without sharing them with others, nor would the taint of stinginess obsess their heart. And even if it were their last and final bit of food, they would not enjoy its use without sharing it if there were anyone to receive it. There were times when Manindra stayed with us uh, because he was healing from some um, health conditions and surgery. And he was with us where we live in Maui. And oftentimes he would eat alone at home, 
And um, I'd come home and I'd have the food prepared for him and I'd come home and say, how are you, Manindraji? You, you ate all by yourself and I'm sorry you had to be alone. He would say, oh, I'm never alone. He said, I have the birds here and I have the, the dog and the cat and all the insects. And after eating, I, I always save a little of my food and I feed them. He, he would share, you know, really take the Buddha's words seriously and share his, his food with the line of ants that would crawl along wherever at the edge of the house, you know. Or, um, you know, we did get a lot of cockroaches during that time. <laughs> so... Um, and he would share the Dharma, of course, the Dhamma. There's a, always a story that we tell those who know him that you just ask him one question about the Dhamma and he wouldn't stop talking till the last person in the room left. You know, he would continue on and on and on. <laughs> one time I, I was with him in Sarnath and he was giving this, somebody asked him a question. Um, Venerable Viranyani was there, and uh, and he was answering the question, you know, and I was really just falling over. So I, I said, excuse me, Manindraji, but I have to go to my room right now. So Venerable Viranyani and the other woman stayed there, but I left the room. But then he went to my room. <laughs> oh, no, I said, yes, and he said, what happened? What do you want? Don't you want me to finish the Dhamma talk? <laughs> so, yeah, giving, it's really an important part of our practice. The far-reaching benefit and result of generosity, of course, is a heart of, of non-greed because we're used to this letting go. We're used to giving, letting go. So then it becomes easier and easier. We can let go of energy, some material resources. We can let go of our need to be right, our opinion. We can let go of self-righteousness. We can let go of greed and hatred and delusion in the end. Utejaniya says, giving uh, generosity is really giving away your greed. You're holding on. So as we continually practice generosity, non-clinging becomes natural for the mind and the heart. Achan Chah would say, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. So at the end of our lives, basically, at the end of our physical life, or when conditions are ripe, to let go of all formations before our physical death even and experience complete peace and freedom. It's much easier when we've practiced this letting go. So that's the first pillar of the Dhamma, generosity, giving. And the second is sila, this living in harmony by the refraining of our speech and our behavior that would do harm. It's a deep respect for all beings, including ourselves, of course. 
And it not just makes for outer harmony, but when we see that we really practice this, we have harmony within our own hearts. We have that kind of reliability on, um, on ourselves to say something or to say or do the right thing. There are certain junctures in my practice when I've made the intention to clean up my act. I mean, it, it usually comes when I've put my foot in my mouth or I've just said a something, something that's a little off, off. And, um, or I've done something, or I've seen it in others, and I realize, ooh, you know, I feel compassion, and I say, I don't want to go in that direction uh, in my life. Not as blame towards another, but just seeing it as a wake-up call for myself. And so um, we have the precepts for that training, all of the precepts we, that we took just before we started here. And they came as a training from the Buddha because with great compassion, the Buddha knew that the habits of the mind and the heart and the compulsions to injure without knowing, because there's so much delusion in the mind, the compulsions to injure are so deep. They come out of ignorance to hurt others through our behavior, through our speech. And we need to remind ourselves as often as we can about this area of our lives. So taking the precepts every day is really a great refuge for us, even when we go home. Sometimes uh, when there's so much happening in the mind and it's chattering, doing its own chatter on its own, I would say just rather replace with this with something useful. So I, I chant the refuges and precepts at any time. It said that the proximate causes for this uh, careful attention to arise, this is known as the two guardians of the world, this careful attention. And they're not outer guardians, but they're inner guardians. In the ancient language that, did, that the teachings are recorded in, they're called hiri and otapa. They're the underpinnings of the precepts. Many fine translators like to use those words, those Pali words, because their translation into English is quite inadequate. So hiri, I'll talk about that a little bit. It's translated as moral shame, which in in our Western language doesn't have a very good connotation. It's associated usually with self-aversion. So I'll, I'll fill it out a little bit in terms of the description in the Pali language and kind of my own sense of it from that description. This hearing is an inner sense, um, it's like an inner conscience that our words are be- or our behavior are somehow not right. There is some deep understanding that they're causing disharmony somehow. It's not just by what we say, um, but, but by what we don't say, or what we say inadvertently that we don't know that we're causing some harm. Or we, we understand later, oh, the way I put that was not exactly causing harmony. It's an internal reference to one's own heart. 
it's an intuitive sense also that this is hurtful to myself. That's where it all boils down to with this hearing. We see the danger to ourselves when we make any kind of transgression, even if it's very subtle with our words, with our uh, behavior, our actions. It really comes out of respect for our own dignity, comes out of respect for our own integrity, which is, yeah, that, that's important, even though there's a sense of self there. It's an important sense of self that we need to protect in our lives. It comes out of wisdom for what we want to be careful about. We don't want to plant the, these seeds out of ha- habit in our karmic mind stream of just, you know, willy-nilly saying and doing what comes habitually. Because when we don't pay attention, just by habit, we feed it. So we want to be very, very careful through this inner guardian of hiri. And then otapa, it's translated into moral dread or moral fear. It's really not that kind of fear that's, again, coming out of hatred or for ourselves or another, but it's a healthy form of fear, really, that the defilements that would cause harm to others are, are coming up. It break, this that I might say or do would break the harmony within our communal standards. And we know that just one disruption of the communal standards, a feeling of unsafety within a community can really disrupt not just that that part that it broke, but it can really disrupt the whole community. That's why it's really careful to keep the precepts, uh, especially here where we're not speaking to one another. What we may dread are the difficulties that would come from that. You know, that we might be blamed from the community and especially be blamed from those we love, from those we honor, from those we respect. It's a healthy fear of um, that. And again, the karmic results of that. So we want to really pay attention Hiri and Otapa support mindfulness uh, in our practice. So as we're mindful, we clearly see what's going on in the mind. And we clearly connect and are sensitive to what's going on outside of us. Recently, a friend told me that she had an interaction where she felt very reactive. And she wanted to say something, but she wanted to wait until she was mindful enough and that she could have the the wherewithal to know what is the correct way of addressing this. So she waited until her mind and heart calmed down and then she took action. She connected and said what she needed to say. So this is hiri, respecting oneself, and also otapa, respecting the other. The Buddha said that this magnificent chariot of the Eightfold Noble Path has Hiri and Otapa as its backrest. If you have this backrest, 
you will have something to rely on, something to depend on, something on which you can sit comfortably as you travel towards your aspiration. If these qualities are weak, he or she risks losing mindfulness and all the dangers that ensue. So paying attention to those, those virtuous qualities, the underpinnings of which are hiri otapa. Sila is a beautiful protection. And you can, you can take the precepts as a form of renun- renunciation. You know, letting go of times when you think you might say something harmful or do something in a way that would hurt another being. It gives the gift of fearlessness to people around us. It makes people feel safe when we do that. It makes them feel honored. So both of these, Dana and Sila, are sturdy foundations for the practice of uh, uh, bhavana to be developed. So I'd like to talk about that now, this third pillar of the Dhamma. Bhavana means bringing forth what, has, what is to be developed, bringing forth what is to be developed. In the West, mental development usually means acquiring knowledge, maybe getting a degree and using our learning and applying that in the world. In meditative fields, it could mean attaining blissful states of mind and um, beautiful states of mind, deep states of concentration. And of course, all of that is worthy of our time, our efforts. But this path is, in the end, truly about letting go, about purification. So tonight, just talking about bhava, bhavana and these two, as two areas of mental development on this particular path. The first area of mental development is the development of calm, concentration, tranquility, the samatha part of our practice, which by itself is the Buddha praised and gave many practices for. This prepares the mind and heart in stability, in strength, which can help to support the emergence of clear seeing, of liberation, liberating insight. This is the this practice, uh, first practice of bhavana, samatha, prepares the mind for vipassana, Satipatthana Vipassana Bhavana. That's the second area, developing wisdom, liberating insight. The Buddha taught many concentration practices, and just to name a few that some of you are familiar with here, they're the practices of the Brahma Viharas, practices of metta or loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. The other one is practice of being on the breath um, as a concentration practice, which one of the Sayadaws, Pa Ok Sayadaw, teaches when he's here. 
In concentration practices, the mental energy is repeatedly directed and focused on a particular object of meditation, on the breath or on the phrase, on the person that we're uh, 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 giving this metta meditation towards. Over and over again, continuously, repeatedly, the energy is going in that direction. And whenever the attention falls away from that object, uh, that object that has arisen to kind of take us away from the main object that we've chosen is ignored, and right away the attention comes back to the chosen object. The field of attention becomes very, very strong at that point. And in time, the momentum of all that energy energizes that field, and it is a very secure protection from all the hindrances. The hindrances are all at bay. They cannot enter that field of protection because it's so, so strong. It creates a force field which gives temporary relief from the hindrances. The mind is so fixated on whatever it is, the object of your practice, that it can become absorbed in it. It happens through repetition, through continuity on your chosen object. In this absorption, there is an extraordinary feeling of calm and tranquility. And there, because there is seclusion from the hindrances, it's just um, a feeling of great bliss a profound sense of the world and the ordinary experiences being very, very far away. Of course, this is very refined mental seclusion. And we may feel it for certain periods of time, sometimes short, sometimes long periods of time in our practice of concentration. These practices were exalted and praised by the Buddha. But this calm, concentration, tranquility will last only as long as one continues to do the practice. And the momentum of the mind continues on that focus. But once it's stopped, it's possible for all the hindrances to come back again. When we feel that place of seclusion, of course it feels very, very seductive and The mind wants to go back to it over and over again. It's said that when this is experienced, we have a sense of how it is for the mind of an arahant. Of course, in the mind of an arahant, the hindrances are totally eradicated and uprooted. But in this case, the hindrances are simply at bay. And they return depending on how weak or how strong the practice has been. So concentration by itself provides a very strong temporary freedom from the hindrances. It stabilizes the mind and can actually be a platform from which we can take off and use in our Vipassana practice. We begin to realize the potential of being free when we do these practices of concentration. 
And that's why they're important in their own way. So it, it strengthens us, it prepares us for the second category of bhavana, which is the development of liberating insight. This is vipassana. Vipassana is seeing or experiencing the true nature of phenomena as it truly is. We begin to open to whatever is happening in a very profound view, a very deep view, a very direct view, not in, on the conceptual level, but you might say before or below the conceptual level of experience. That's why there are these instructions. In the seeing, let there only be the seen. In the hearing, let there only be the heard. In the, or just the knowing of it. Not going on and on about what is being heard, where it came from. Manindra used to always say, the thought of your mother is not your mother. You know, don't go on and on about it. So in this practice, we begin to open to the full range of experience, all the four foundations of mindfulness and and the various parts of each of those four. In short, whatever the mind opens up to, whatever mindfulness is facing in that moment, the predominant or the obvious uh, experience in that moment is what is known in that moment. Sometimes a primary anchor is used in the beginning of practice especially, but not always. Um, Sometimes it can be let go of. Everything that arises is the object of attention. So the mindful attention is repeatedly brought to whatever is occurring, the quickly arising, changing, and fading present moment of whatever that is. It isn't a chosen object, which is very different in the samatha practice. So here, in this practice of vipassana, there is also concentration being developed, and that's very important to understand. But it's not concentration on a chosen object or on a limited field. It's concentration on changing objects. And this is extremely important because it's through this that it gives the mind the right view, the open and deep view of the impermanent, a not-self, unsatisfactory nature of all of experience, which concentration in and of itself on a chosen object does not give. It does not open to that. So concentration on changing objects is hugely important. Sometimes the experience when it does this is not one of great calm. That is not the the goal of uh, satipatthana vipassana. Because the experience is always changing, there are thoughts, sensations, wanting, aversion, the breath, there's relief, there's compassion, there's loving kindness, there's the knowing mind, when it can get very subtle, just the mind of knowing without any particular gross objects being known. The subjective experience can sometimes feel very disruptive, very uncomfortable, and this is okay. 
This is part of the practice. It faces the uncontrollability, the vulnerability of not just life, but it's seen in every moment of life. And in every moment that it's experienced, that understanding is deepened, is known, is open to. Until equanimity is strengthened, it can feel very disruptive and um, overwhelming sometimes. Because it's impossible to stay on anything, even momentarily. This is the way it is. We think practice isn't good, but we're told over and over again not to evaluate our practice. Because sometimes when this is happening, it's actually excellent practice. It's revealing the true nature, revealing the truths that one needs to open to over and over again. The constantly changing, nothing to hang on to, no stable core found in anything. In each experience, experientially, not just intellectually, or because we can place something that we read or heard and overlay it on some experience. But it comes from within. And it may connect to something we have heard, but it doesn't start from there. It starts from the actual experience. One realizes that in just kind of the very, one of the very first understandings that come, what we go kind of below the concept which seems so solid, it begins to get unsolid. And one begins to see that, oh, there is the object that one is knowing, that is being known, and there is the knowing of it. So things start breaking apart in their own way. And it's not because we're deeming it so. It's because mindfulness and wisdom are seeing it in that way, in a very deep way. There is a realization of the conditionality of each experience. Everything is arising due to different changing conditions, coming and going, coming and going. Nothing really exists in and of itself or in combination with anything else because every combination is changing. Every piece of that combination is also changing. This is realized for each of the five aggregates, which um, Joseph and I have been bringing up in our talks individually with you when that's, um, that is appropriate, and in our talks here in the hall. It's realized that clinging to any of these five aggregates individually or in combination is useless because it's just like water slipping through our hands, the river going on its way. There's nothing to cling to or, can't, or that can be clung to. The insights into impermanence or anicca, the insights into the unreliability of anything to give lasting happiness, which is dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of life, to provide us with lasting happiness. We start to see more deeply into that. 
the deep understanding of the conditioned nature of everything that makes up what we kind of cobble together and make a sense of self out of, even that can't hold on to. Everything is really empty of any kind of core, of any kind of permanent essence. So it begins with some very simple realizations and that various insights into anicca, dukkha, and anatta are deepened into. Sometimes it's more understanding, direct understanding, experiential understanding into dukkha. Sometimes it's more anicca. Sometimes it's more anatta. Sometimes it's more connected to sensations in the body. Sometimes more to perception. Sometimes more to feeling. Sometimes more to sankharas. Sometimes more to uh, consciousness itself. There's this um, writing by Trungpa Rinpoche. The experience of oneself relating to other things is actually a momentary discrimination, a fleeting thought. If we generate this fleeting thought fast enough, we can create the illusion of continuity and solidity. Like watching a movie, the individual frames are played so quickly, they generate the illusion of continued movement, solidity. So we build up an idea, a preconception, that self and other are solid and continuous. And once we have this idea, we manipulate our thoughts to confirm it. This is delusion. And we are afraid of contrary evidence. That's why it's so hard to open to all of this sometimes. But eventually, wisdom sees the three characteristics of anicca, dukkha, anatta more and more deeply and opens to them more and more easily. One becomes disenchanted with what, was one, what one was previously enchanted by. The mind of clinging, craving, holding on to any experience relinquishes because there is this deep understanding that can't hold on to anything at all. Profound equanimity towards all formations begins to arise. There is kind of a surrender to how things are, to the law of how things are. No reactivity to any, ex- to any experience at any of the sense doors. It just things come, they do their thing, they go. Moment to moment, moment to moment. And actually this is when we also realize how the experience of an arahant can be when there are no, there's no hanging on to anything and there's no defilements in the mind. So there is this liberating understanding that there is nothing at all to cling to and there's this deep letting go in the mind. That force and that continuity becomes very, very powerful in and of itself. There's no one that's making that happen outside or inside or a combination of anything, of any 
anyone, anywhere. The direction towards greater freedom is inevitable. From conditioned relative reality, there's an inclination towards the unconditioned. And this is the way it is. And from that strong momentum, it is said that there is a leaping into the unconditioned. That word is used synonymously with nibbana or nirvana. And this is what the Buddha talked about as the goal of the holy life. Nibbana is the extinguishing of the fires of greed, hatred, ignorance. The relinquishing, the complete extinction of them. It's an ineffable experience because it is beyond conceptual understanding. It's a sense, the cessation of all conditioned experience, which is hard to conceptualize. It's beyond the words of description, beyond imagination, beyond formations, beyond knowing, beyond any consciousness. But it's possible. So even though it can be beyond comprehension, I want to repeat the Buddha's words. And this is from the Udana, a sacred um, compilation of the Buddha's words. There is that sphere where there is no earth, no water, no fire, no wind, no sphere of infinity of space, of infinity of consciousness, of nothingness, or even of neither perception nor non-perception. There is neither this world nor the other world, neither moon nor sun. This sphere I call neither a coming nor a going nor a staying still, neither dying nor a reappearance. It has no basis, no foundation, and no support. This, just this, is the end of dukkha, the end of suffering. There is, monks, an unborn, an unbecome, unmade, uncompounded. If there were not this unborn, unbecome, unmade, uncompounded, then there would be no deliverance here visible from that which is born, made, compounded. But since there is this unborn, unbecome, unmade, uncompounded, a deliverance is possible from that which is born, become, made, compounded. I will teach you the far shore, the subtle, the difficult to see, the undisintegrating, the unmanifest, the unproliferated, the peaceful, the deathless, the sublime, the secure, the destruction of craving, the amazing, the unailing Nibbana, the island, the shelter, the refuge, Nibbana.
So this is the realization of the highest potential of human beings. This potential exists in everyone, young or old, from any culture, man or woman. The realization of this potential is available to those who develop their minds and their hearts through this path, the Eightfold Noble Path. If you open to the possibility, your life will incline in that direction, even if it's not comprehensible to you now. So let's sit for a moment. So let's end with the sharing of the blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.